This podcast will discuss non-immigrant visa waivers of various grounds of inadmissibility and give examples of typical fact patterns where Murthy Law Firm has been successful. My name is Brian Green. I'm a supervising attorney in the Special Projects Department here at Murthy Law Firm. And with me today is senior attorney Dana DeLott. And we're going to discuss non-immigrant waiver applications. And Dana, can you explain um, when a non-immigrant visa waiver application is required? A non-immigrant visa waiver is required when a person has been found to be inadmissible. And inadmissibility is a, a category of person who is, in short, not allowed to enter the U.S. for some reason. And, and we'll discuss what that means in more detail uh, a little bit later. So one question is, where is a finding of inadmissibility made? And that can be, first of all, it's often made at a consulate when a visa applicant is being interviewed, but it can happen in other uh, federal situations as well. Dana, when someone's faced with inadmissibility, are all visa waiver applications the same? Um, no, they're not all the same. There, there is a continuity between them because there is a certain legal standard. But because each one is based on a different set of facts, um, it will each one will be very customized and different uh, within showing that they meet the, those specific legal standards. And because that, we do advise that you get some assistance from an experienced immigration attorney before just going ahead and trying to do this on your own. And we do have extensive experience at the Murthy Law Firm with non-immigrant visa waivers of, of all types and uh, can recommend specific courses of action. What, so Brian, can you explain to us um, how would somebody find out that they even needed a non-immigrant waiver? Often the person that is applying for a visa and the consular officer will, will tell them, unfortunately, I can't approve the visa because you're inadmissible. Other times people may know ahead of time because there was a finding of inadmissibility made by USCIS, made by Customs and Border Protection, maybe it's based on um, some sort of criminal law violation or overstay in the U.S. So it can either be something the person's surprised with, unfortunately, or it can be something the person knows in advance. And if the consulate then tells the person that they need a waiver, uh, what is the consulate supposed to do? How do they do that? The consular officer is supposed to explain to the visa applicant that they're eligible to file for a waiver. And typically, they will give the person a piece of paper that says you're eligible to file a, a waiver application. But Dana, what do they mean by eligible? It Right. That eligibility simply means that the particular ground of inadmissibility could potentially be waived if a person filed an appropriate request for the waiver. It does not mean that the consulate decided already that the person is going to get the waiver. And we do find that that, that is a common misunderstanding. So, so eligible means you're, you can apply for the waiver. It doesn't mean you're going to get it. Exactly. You've got to prove that you should be given the waiver. And also, you know, there are times, as Brian mentioned, that people will go to the consulate. The consulate will tell them that they need a waiver. There are also times where a person will know ahead of time that they're subject to a ground of inadmissibility. And 
in those instances, what they need to do is to show up at the consulate, make their visa application, and come prepared already with the waiver to apply at that point, rather than waiting for the consulate to ask them and then doing it in a, a multiple-step process that's, again, when you already know that you need it, just come prepared. So we've talked about waivers in general now, but the, the underlying problem is the inadmissibility. Can you explain to us what are some typical scenarios that lead to inadmissibility? Yes, there's there's many different fact patterns that will lead to inadmissibility, but we can divide them into just a few basic types. The three main scenarios that we see are inadmissibility as the result of fraud or misrepresentation of a material fact in connection with an immigration application um, or by seeking to get an immigration benefit. Uh, the second is remaining in the U.S. beyond the expiration of one's non-immigrant status, uh, accruing unlawful presence uh, and creating a bar to reentry. And also, the commission of certain crimes can make people inadmissible also. You mentioned fraud or misrepresentation. Does that have to occur during a visa interview? No, it, it does sometimes occur, and in fact often occurs at the time of the visa interview, but it doesn't have to be limited to that situation. Um, as far as the fraud that sometimes does happen in a visa interview, that usually is connected to statements or documents provided uh, in connection with the visa application. We have represented clients who were found to be inadmissible because they made statements uh, at the consulate or provided documents that contradicted information in the very petitions that they were submitting or that they were applying based upon. Or sometimes the consulate will be a little suspicious of something and they will search social websites such as Facebook and LinkedIn and they'll find contradictory information, things like marital status or employment. Um, so again, very commonly a visa applicant might be uh, determined to have committed fraud or misrepresentation in connection with the very visa application that they're making. Um, you know, as I mentioned, marital status, criminal records, uh, prior status history, all of that has to be clearly and properly represented at the consulate, or it is very likely that a problem will arise. People may think that visa applications are fairly simple, but what you're describing sounds more complicated. Is there a common problem that we see at Murthy Law Firm dealing with visa applications? Um, common problems are that people either don't understand the questions that are asked. For example, if they're asked, have you ever been arrested? For some reason, they will read that as being, were you arrested last week or last month? And they will forget that they were arrested a year ago or two years ago. Um, we see problems with marital status. Uh, people will think that for some reason um, that they need to put down that they're single when they're really married. Uh, very often, if they, they'll think that if, like for example, in India, that if they didn't register the marriage, that they should put it down as single, not married. Um, all sorts of things like that. They sometimes think they need to put in extra proof of employment uh, that they maybe didn't actually engage in. Um, it's you know it's unfortunate because sometimes people will give wrong information or wrong documents because they think it's going to enhance their chances of coming to the U.S. And in truth, they maybe could have gotten in here uh, with the, with the you know factual documents, and it's the fraud finding that will keep them out. So being 100% accurate and truthful is the most important thing. Right, and understanding the questions so that you can decide the best way to answer them 
while remaining accurate. So if you don't understand the question, you need to seek help from a qualified immigration attorney so that way you don't cause this weight, this immiscibility problem that could require the waiver afterwards. Right. And so now that we've talked about the fraud findings made during the visa interview, Brian, can you talk about some of the other situations where we find that people um, will be found to have committed fraud or misrepresentation? One, one way is if USCIS issues a determination that uses the word fraud or misrepresentation or overstay in that, that, fine, that, that determination. So if you get a determination like that in the mail, you need to discuss it with an attorney because you already know that there's a problem. What we see more commonly is people that arrive at the U.S. at an airport will deboard and go through Customs and Border Protection, and some people are stopped and uh, detained and questioned, and they may make statements to CBP officers that contradict their visa, their status, what they're intending to do in the U.S., and what CBP can do is they can search your luggage, they can search your smartphone, they can look at emails, photographs, all kinds of instant messages, whatever you have in your person or with you, they can look at, and sometimes it comes out that the person is coming to attend school, but they also have some unauthorized work on the side. They may be coming on a travel visa, but really their spouse is already in the U.S. CBP will then interview that that traveler, and if they find proof that the person has misstated, uh, failed to answer properly a question asked to them, they will make a fraud or misrepresentation finding. At that point, the person uh, is in some trouble, the CBP officer will cancel the visa. They will then either uh, do what's called expedited removal, which is a form of deportation from the airport, or if they're a little kinder, what they can do is allow the person to withdraw their application for admission. Essentially, the person's now standing at the border. They have to leave. They're going home. Their visas are canceled in their passport, and they have a finding of inadmissibility that requires a waiver, and that's where we get to our question today. Right, and although we've spent a lot of time on, on fraud, I do want to say one more thing. I would just ask our listeners not to do this. The U.S. government takes this very seriously. And what seems like an innocent little thing, a, a extra job reference or a statement that's a little not quite accurate, the U.S. government in immigration context spends a lot of time trying to sort out the truth from what isn't the truth. And because of that, they take this very seriously and it creates a permanent bar. And even though we're talking about waivers today, that doesn't mean that a fraud waiver is going to be granted very easily. They usually do want to see quite a bit of time between the commission of the fraud and the point where they'll be willing to even consider a waiver. Yeah, it's something that's going to follow you for the rest of your life, so absolutely. Dana, can you, we discussed the term overstay. Can you explain to us what that means? Right. Overstay is a term of art in immigration that simply means staying beyond the period of of stay that you're authorized to be in the U.S., the simply overstaying doesn't necessarily lead to inadmissibility. This is actually kind of a, a complicated topic. When we're talking about inadmissibility for uh, based upon status violations, what we're talking about is people who have accrued unlawful presence. And you have to accrue 180 days or more of unlawful presence and then depart. That will trigger a three-year bar to reentry, and if you have unlawful presence of a year or more and then depart the country, you will have a 10-year bar. 
And again, this, this is sort of a complicated topic. There's like a, uh, what, 40-page memo that defines when unlawful presence is counted and when it's not. Uh, so simply being out of status may not trigger this. You do want to have that analyzed. The simple version of this is that unlawful presence is counted from the point where either the I-94 expires or there's a finding of being out of status. And uh, again, there's a set of rules. Sometimes we don't count the time after the I-94 expires if you have something else pending or what have you. But that the simple version is that. And, and Dana, how will the government know if you have overstayed? They will likely know because either you're going to fill out the visa application and it's going to ask you about past violations and it's going to ask you for your status during prior stays. And and because we just lectured you about fraud, you're going to answer it accurately. So you may just actually have to own up to this on the form itself. Also, when you depart the U.S., you give your I-94. So that should track in their system, and they'll likely see it. They'll see that gap between the I-94 and the point of your departure. And then also, as we mentioned, there are times when there's a finding that the person's out of status, and that, too, likely will be tracked in the system and and come out at the interview. And, okay, so now that we've talked about inadmissibility, um, Brian, can you uh, give our listeners some more information on how you actually file this waiver? Sure. Strangely, there is no form for a waiver application. There's no uh, form you can download off an internet website. When you do a waiver application, you need to present a written detailed request to typically the U.S. consular officer asking for that waiver to be approved. And we at Murthy Law Firm usually put together a nice package, including a written statement that goes over what the admissibility ground is, why the person is eligible to be granted a waiver. And we submit along with this uh, as much documentation as we can showing why the person is worthy of that waiver being granted. Typically, this is presented to a consular officer at the U.S. consulate, maybe at the window. And at that point, the consular officer is first going to recommend the waiver or not. And if it's recommended, it's going to go to Customs and Border Protection, which has an office near Washington, D.C., called the Admissibility Review Office, the ARO. And that ARO office has the final say on whether the waiver is approved or denied. And can you tell us what specific things am I supposed to prove in this waiver? What are the elements that that I need to show? There are three factors that are considered in a waiver application. The first is whether the person applying for the visa is a risk of harm to the U.S. society. The second factor is the seriousness of the conduct that led to the inadmissibility finding in the first place. And the third factor is the visa applicant's reasons for wanting to enter the U.S. So, Dana, can you explain to us what types of documentation should be used in support of a waiver application? Yes. The the t- specific documents that you're going to put in there are going to vary by the facts of the situation. Um, but typically, we're going to have at least some affidavits from friends and colleagues and certainly a statement from the individual seeking the waiver explaining what happened, how this happened, and, you know, if it was something that was their fault, why they should be forgiven for it, and obviously taking um, accountability for that. The the situations that give rise to a waiver, again, they, they can vary. So if it's something like fraud, I'm going to need to show that, again, the person takes accountability and that also that they have otherwise 
sort of redeem themselves. I'm going to want to show a good job history. I'm going to want to show that some time has elapsed. I'm going to want to perhaps show that they were much younger when they made that mistake or had some other desperate circumstance. Um, as far as danger to the U.S., I'm going a risk to the U.S. if we let them in. Again, you're going to want to show that this person hopefully doesn't have any other criminal history, has otherwise conducted themselves well in terms of, again, job history, responsibility for family, whatever that situation is. I'm going to want to paint this person in a very positive light. And the same goes for the reason for coming to the U.S. Sometimes, um, you know, we've got people who are maybe H4s trying to join their spouse. You're going to show it's a genuine reason for needing to come here, wanting to come here. Maybe we've got a couple kids. Um, just, again, it's going to depend a lot. Some of these things are done by accident, particularly the overstays. Sometimes things just don't get filed. People don't know to file them or something goes wrong. Those, you're going to have documentation showing this was just an innocent oops. And that's obviously going to be easier to get than a waiver for somebody who lies on an application commits fraud. Dana, we've been discussing how visa applicants apply for waivers. What happens if you don't need a visa to enter the U.S.? If you don't need a visa, then you can make this application at the border uh, for, let's say, Canadians, somebody who's visa exempt. You can make this at the border and submit it directly to the CBP by filing the form uh, I-192 in advance of your intended date of entry. Uh, then it follows a, a similar procedure with the CBP uh, making recommendation and, and, and uh, sending it over to the admissibility review office. Um, so that option is there, although you, the fact that somebody is visa exempt doesn't force them to use that. They could go apply for a visa if that made more sense. So they could just go to a U.S. Uh, consulate in Toronto and apply for the visa and the waiver at that point? They could go to a consulate, you know, appropriate consulate. Uh, they have a choice. System. Exactly. They have a choice. And, and that, too, they probably should discuss with the attorney to see pros and cons there. So when the happy day comes and the waiver is approved, how long is that uh, waiver approval good for? It is only good for a single entry. Wow. So this is a, uh, a headache that the person will have to deal with each and every time. Now, obviously, it should get a little easier as time goes on, because if someone's granted a waiver and nothing goes wrong uh, between their waiver and the next travel, then okay, it should be easier. But still, it is, it is something they have to deal with each and every time as a non-immigrant. And then if they want to get a green card, um, this fraud will still follow them. Um, certain criminal grounds will still follow them. The 10-year bar may still follow them, depending on how much time has elapsed. They, in all likelihood, will have to file for a separate waiver in connection with that, which is a higher standard, requires uh, qualifying relatives. It is the fact that you get a non-immigrant non waiver does not necessarily mean you're going to get an immigrant waiver. That, too, should be discussed with an attorney because it's a, a, a whole separate set of problems. That sounds complicated. We've covered a lot of ground today, and in summary, inadmissibility can arise from a number of different reasons, different causes, but the result is still the same. If the person wants to come into the U.S. and they are found inadmissible, they have to apply for a waiver. And 
as Dana said, every waiver and every person is, is unique and different. You need to take the waiver process very seriously and not just submit something that's very brief to a consulate or at the border. You need to work with a qualified attorney to develop the waiver application that's going to give you the very best chance to overcome the inadmissibility and be granted the waiver. Murthy Law Firm has a great track record of success in working with these cases. We craft our waiver applications based on the person and their unique circumstances. We'd be happy to assist you if you have any questions in this area. And at Murthy Law Firm, as we always say, we know your immigration matters. Thank you very much. Have a good day.